Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, And every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the ribs the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Again, thank you all for joining us this morning. So as I have been working through this text uh, last week, actually last couple weeks and thinking about it, I don't know that I could submit to you a section of scripture that is more controversial than these couple paragraphs in our world today. That's kind of intimidating. I mean, this, this, ta- this scripture goes through marriage, it goes through singleness, it goes through uh, gender, it goes through sexuality, it goes through all the subjects that are major hot topics in the world today, major controversies. And, uh, and so preaching those words is always going to be a challenge, but uh, today the goal is to hear the word of God. And as we uh, try and deal with this text, uh, it's important that we fix our eyes on what is the, the main message of God's text, which is a revelation of himself. And what I believe that we see revealed most clearly in this passage is that God is love. As we have gone through this series in Genesis, we have called it The Reason Why. And the reason we've called it The Reason Why is because in Genesis 1 through 3, we deal with pretty much every issue that explains the reason the world is the way it is today. Why is the world uh, beautiful but, but also full of corruption? Why, why does the world work but also we see so many uh, ways that it is abused. Why, why do men and women love each other but have such a hard time getting along with each other? Uh, we can go on and on and on. And we have looked at uh, many of the different uh, issues in, in the previous weeks. But this week, as we look at the reason why, we are going to focus on the fact that in Genesis 2, in this description of marriage, we have brought to the fore the universal need, the universal desire for love. That seems to be what is 
dealt with here. And so even as we are so far away from the, the, the time of this passage and our world is so different in its appearance than what we see in Eden, yet we still live with the yearning and the longing for love. We cannot get away from this, this picture of love. It draws us. And every single one of us in our life, one way or another, are trying to fulfill this desire. You only have to listen to music on the radio. It doesn't matter what genre of music, country, pop, uh, R&B, rap. The issue of love and finding love prevails in every song almost. It's in movies. It's, it's the classic plot line, falling in love. Poems for centuries have dedicated their their interest in the topic of love. We have to recognize from this abundant evidence in the culture and in our own heart that we are wired for love. And it's that wiring for love that takes us right back to Eden. And it calls us to look at this passage and make sense of that desire for love according to what the Bible tells us. Now, when we talk about marriage, there's a good possibility that some in the room may say, this is not a message for me. If you're not married, is this message for you? First of all, I want to address singles by by making it very clear that though this text establishes the foundation of marriage, it in no way means to say that marriage is a requirement, that marriage is necessary, that you're only truly human or truly alive or truly Christian if you're married with 12 kids. That is not what's being said here. Uh, Singleness is celebrated as a good state in the Bible. You can just look at Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who both conducted their ministries in singleness. But biblical marriage is a message for all of us, single or married. It's a message for the newly married. It's a message for the long-time married. It's a message for the divorced, the widowed, the hoping to be married, and the lifelong single. Why? Because when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, we are told the true meaning of marriage is found in Christ. Paul tells us, therefore, quoting from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when we recognize that what we see in Genesis 2 is designed to be a picture of God's love, then the picture of biblical marriage is a picture that we all need to grasp, we all need to cherish, we all need to fight for, because in it, is the message of God's love. And that's what I want us to focus on today. Wherever you are, we will see in biblical marriage that it is a reflection of God's love. That's what marriage is all about. And so if you are married, the question for you as we go through this passage is, am I reflecting the love in my marriage that God has designed it to reflect? If you are not married, the question for you is, do I know the love of God that marriage is simply a reflection of? 
for both of us, for every single one of us in the room, the question is not are you married, but do you know the love of God? Because in biblical marriage, we see it designed to reflect God's love. And we're going to see four ways it is designed to reflect God's love. We are going to see first it reflects God's love in that it is self-giving. The second, we are going to see it is reflective of God's love in that it is permanent. The third, it reflects God's love in that it is exclusive. And the fourth, it reflects God's love in that it is joyous. Let us go through this passage and see how biblical marriage is designed to reflect God's love. Let's pay attention to that first way. It is self-giving. We start this passage with these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The astute reader will recognize that up until this point, every declaration from God is, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is Very good. And so there's something pretty arresting when all of a sudden we come across the words, not good. God recognizes as he has created Adam that it is not good for Adam to simply be alone. And he requires a helper. Now when we see the words not good, we need to recognize those in context. Not good does not mean that Adam was was not good as an individual or that Adam was not able to reflect the image of God. That is not what it is saying. Not good is in reference to the work that God has given Adam to do. God has told Adam to work and keep the garden. And God recognizes, before Adam recognizes, obviously he recognizes it from the foundation of time, that it is not good for Adam to be alone. But he allows this realization to dawn upon Adam over time. He allows, as a good teacher does, for Adam to come to this conclusion by going through the exercise of naming all of the animals. And by naming all of the animals, Adam is discovering two important things about his uh, existence. One is God has given him a whole bunch of work to do. There are a ton of animals. This is a lot on his plate. And so as he works at naming all of his animals, I expect that he is experiencing the first uh, uh, moment of exhaustion in his young life and would probably appreciate to be able to multitask just a little bit. But the second, as he goes through all of these animals, he's noticing something there's a boy rabbit, and there's a girl rabbit, and there's a boy horse, and a girl horse, and there's a uh, a boy dog and a girl dog, and every single animal has a pair, has a boy and a girl. And as he goes through all of these animals, he doesn't find anything that looks like him that could possibly be considered a mate. And so in, in this text, he comes to the recognition that there is no partner for him in the animal kingdom. There is nothing that matches him in the animal kingdom. And so then at verse 20b... We come to the end of naming all the animals, and Adam recognizes that there is no helper fit for him. 
And it is, I think, worth noting that God graciously provides the helper for him and knows his needs even before Adam knows his needs. Because when does God announce it is not good that he needs a helper? He announces that in verse 18. This is the God that we have. He is gracious and providing. He knows what we need and he is is planning to provide for our needs even before we know, as he does with Adam. Now, when we look at the creation of Eve, we come straight into the biblical uh, understanding of manhood and womanhood. And there are two key understandings about what it is to be a biblical man and a biblical woman from the Bible. The first is their equality. And the second is their complementarity. These two things are taught right here in Genesis chapter 2 for us to recognize that man and woman are created equal and man and woman are created in such a way to complement one another. Let's see how this plays out in the text. First, as we look at at equality, as Adam goes through the entire animal kingdom, it is stressed that there is no match found for Adam. There is no one like Adam in the whole animal kind, no one that could be called his mate. Second, we see that just like Adam, the woman Eve is specially created. It is a special work of God to create Eve, just as it is a special work of God to create Adam. And also, we see that the woman is made of the exact same stuff as the man taken from the side of the man. This makes it very clear. This woman possesses your attributes. She possesses your equality. She is of you. She is like you. She is one of you in equality, right? And so this description is just an expansion of what we read in Genesis one twenty-seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see the, the, the equality of male and female. They have equality and dignity and status. They both share the image of God. They are both co-heirs. And I, I love the um, ancient commentator Peter Lombard who speaks of Eve's being created from Adam's side as stressing again this equality. Peter Lombard said this, so that it should be shown that she was created for the partnership of love, lest if perhaps she had been made from his head she should be perceived as set over man in domination, or if from his feet, as if subject to him in servitude. But Eve is created from the side to show that they stand side by side before God and side by side towards each other. But we also recognize, in the equality, we also recognize that they are created to be complements When God decides I need to create a helper for Adam, he doesn't create a duplicate. He creates a complement. And when he creates a complement, he is creating a match for the man, a teammate. All right, imagine you're a football team and you have a great quarterback. And the coach says, I need to help you win games. So I'm going to draft another quarterback. That's not helpful. 
What the quarterback needs is a wide receiver. And so just as Adam needs a mate, he needs a complement to complete what he lacks. He needs a teammate. And so when God decides to create a woman, he says that the woman is going to be fit to. The, the Hebrew word there is, is neged, which is a fun word to say. You're neged. Sometimes I imagine when I get nervous, you're all neged. Uh, but neged means that you're a complement. You're opposite to. You're like the, the puzzle piece that matches my puzzle piece. That's, that's what is in the word neged. And so there is in, in the creation of Eve never the idea of creating a duplicate, but a complement. This is seen in a wordplay in the Hebrew. The, the word for man is ish. And the, man for woman, or the word for woman is isha. And so, man, and so God goes to create an isha for the ish. You see the complement. They are not the same, but they ring together. They belong together. They fulfill and complete the other. So complete is this complement that when uh, Adam is woken up and Eve is there in front of him, he sings a, a poem of joy. I mean, real delight, like, whoa, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she's an Isha, because she came out of Ish. And so there is delight at the compliment, which means to say that Eve is better than identical. It is better that she is a compliment, that she creates a pair and this pairing, this complement, is more than anatomical. I mean, we should expect God, who is a perfect creator, to create a complement for man in every way, uh, psychologically, mentally, emotionally. And so when we see that there is a complement in the physical characteristics, we should recognize that that, that complement is a profound one that goes all the way down. Most men in the room have simultaneously wondered why women are the way they are and also been very thankful that women are the way they are because if they were just like us, we'd have the exact same blind spots. We'd make the exact same mistakes. We would do all the things goofy that we do. The, 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 the marriage mate helps us be normal, right? And maybe it goes the other way too, but for, for, for me at least, uh, it's a great help. The whole point is that God in his wisdom and his goodness and his love designed men and women to work together, to do the work of the garden together, to be a team. So what? What's the point of all of this? In in, In being created gendered and being created male and female in this way that needs a complement We have been made to need an other. We have been made to need an other. But even more, we have been made to give ourselves to an other. I.e., we are made for love. That is what the complement is tells us. 
And marriage shows us what kind of love we are made for. Our love is to be a giving, a helping, a need-meeting love. It is, to be quite precise, an other-centered love. That is the baffling thing that happens to every man in marriage is suddenly it's not all about me. It's about us. It's about working as a team. Marriage is designed to pull us from selfishness into working and caring and elevating the interests of someone else above our own. It is other-centered. Why then? Why then is this the way that we have been created? It is simply this, because marriage is about reflecting the love of God, which is a self-giving love. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the self giving nature of God's love. Though he was equal to God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he made himself willingly a servant to the point of the cross because his love is self-giving. Or elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 Through 25, we read these words. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Here we see Christ demonstrating self-giving. Even though he is the head. Even though he is the supreme person over the church. He gives himself out of love for his bride, the church. By laying down his life to purify, sanctify, and make beautiful his wife. Here we see Christ showing self-giving love by submitting. And self-giving love by sacrificing himself as the head. In both cases, the role is to give the self out of love, is to reflect Christ in our giving. Now, I know that we are coming very close to a a touchy subject, which is the question of roles in marriage. 
And there are plenty of gender stereotypes that do absolutely no good. But I will leave it at this as we look at these two passages that put Christ as our example. Our marriages are to reflect this self-giving love. If you say the command of submission is, is, is too hard, it's too onerous. If there is a man that is perfectly loving to you and laying down his life for you, could you submit to him? That is Christ. And Christ calls uh, uh, wives to be submissive as they are submissive to him. And if there are husbands who, need to, who, who uh, uh, struggle with, with understanding self-giving love, your task is to love by giving your life, by laying down your life, by sacrificing yourself for the good of your wife. I believe when, when we take that attitude into marriage, the giving of ourself, we create a beautiful marriage and we participate, each one of us, in the self-giving nature of Christ. We reflect it in a way that is countercultural, but that is very, very noticed. Why do we love our spouses this way? If in, sub, if in submission is by humbling ourselves like Christ did to save us, if in headship it is by laying our life down like Christ did for his bride, why do we love our spouses this way? Because Christ loved us this way. He gave himself for us. And so we live out our lives showing self-giving love in our marriages. So we've seen that it is self-giving. Second, though, we see that biblical marriage is designed to reflect God's love by demonstrating permanence. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, verse 24. Marriage, in Genesis 2, represents the highest bond that we make with one another. There is nothing more supreme than the covenant of marriage. I mean, look at how it is, it is laid out for us. First, you leave, you forsake your mother and father. That's intention with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. In the instance of your wife or your husband, that is put second to your commitment. So you are to, in a sense, cut ties with mom and dad so as to make a true bond with your new husband or new wife. It is a startling rearrangement of your allegiances. I mean, it goes to the highest of high. Second, we are told that marriage is to hold fast, uh, to cleave, uh, to hold tightly, the Hebrew devak, it's, it's covenantal language. It's the same words that God uses to tell Israel, your faithfulness is to hold fast to me. It's a synonym for being one of God's, to hold fast. It's, it's to be clenched. You, you can't unpry it. How, how fastly held are you? How riveted is this covenant? By it, you become 
one flesh. One flesh. That means it's permanent. As Paul indicates in Ephesians, your spouse is your own body. You love your spouse as you love your own body because in fact, she is your body. This fusion of of one fleshness, it's not a piece of paper. It's by God. We're told in Matthew chapter 19, as Jesus is discussing the issue of divorce, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I, I can't tell you what that means in some kind of pictorial sense. But what it it stresses is that God has put this arrangement together. God has ratified it. And God's word has not changed. There is a one fleshness that is created by the fact that God has recognized that marriage. Now I know that when we talk about the permanence of marriage, we wonder about, are there exceptions, are there, are there cases for divorce? And that is not the, the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is to lay out what marriage was created for. There are perhaps situations that require discussion about divorce, but what is given to us as our example, what is given to us as our ideal, is a marriage that is permanent, that is one flesh. And I think it is important to grasp that when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about commitment. And I want want young girls and young boys in this room to hear this. The most loving words are, I do to you. It is not loving language to say, if you loved me, dot, dot, dot. It is not love to suggest, let's just live together. The love that you are worthy of as an image bearer, as a sacred holder of God's blessing upon your life, is a man or a woman who will say, I do for you, and mean it, and mean till death do us part. Because, why make a big deal about this? Why make this this discussion about permanence? Because God's love is permanent. God's love is permanent. When when we are told in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 that these words that we have just gone through is a profound mystery, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you think Christ and the church is an impermanent relationship? Christ and the church goes on forever. Christ makes himself one flesh with his bride, the church. And as that relationship goes on forever, our marriages, which are to reflect his love, should image that till death do us part. That is... Why? Because God's love is permanent. Marriage is to point to the permanent, unbreakable, eternal love of God 
for us. Listen, here's the gospel. Jesus says to you, I do. I do to the pain of death. I do to the grave. I do to the resurrection. I do to the end of the age. I do to the end of time. I do. And why do we trust those words? Because they are a covenant. He will not break his word. His I do to you is trustworthy. It is the I do of the perfect husband. Third, it is exclusive. It is exclusive. Biblical marriage is designed to reflect God's love by being exclusive. They shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh here describes many different elements of the relationship, but it definitely also includes the sexual part. And in the words one flesh, we find the entire biblical sexual ethic. C.S. Lewis wrote this when he described what what is the teaching of of sex in the Bible. C.S. Lewis says, either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. I think Lewis got it right. It is quite that simple. Either complete faithfulness in marriage or total abstinence outside of it. And that is grounded entirely on what we read here in Genesis 2. We are made one flesh. Marriage is described for us as the only context for sexual intimacy. Indeed, the Bible is pro-sex. It, it wants sex for, its, for, for, for married people, for, for people. You want to know what the first commandment, the first imperative that God speaks to people? Be fruitful and multiply. Modern terms, go at it. That is the first command. God wants man and woman in marriage to enjoy sexual intimacy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 commands us to give our conjugal rights to our spouse. It is a sin to be withholding in the marriage bed. It is to be a cleaving, one fleshing time that that should be a, a focus of the marriage. Why? Marriage alone is what makes sex special. It's the only thing that makes sex priceless. Because to participate in it, it requires the pledge of your life. And anything less makes it cheap. Sex for a great dinner is cheap.
It requires our life in pledge. It is this high view that forbids sex everywhere else. The whole idea of sex in the Bible is to say no, 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 so that you can celebrate the bigger yes of, of, of intimacy in marriage. As Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And when we talk about this, we're not just talking to young people. This ethic applies to the divorced and the widowed, to all who are unmarried. Sex is priceless and sex is kept for marriage. Why? Why can't we just have some fun? (laughs) Why is it so strict? Again, because it's designed to reflect the love of God. Christ has pledged himself to his church. He has given his life for her. He will never break his word. He cherishes her. He desires her. He holds on to her. The husband that we have in the church, 2 Timothy 2.13, says if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Which is to say that when, when, when Christ takes us upon, when he says, I do to us, he says, I do to us exclusively. And as Hebrews 13.8 states, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You have his exclusive favor and love. He will not be diverted to someone else. He is yours and you are to be his. His love for you is in the best possible terms jealous. Because to go anywhere else would be to have an inferior lover, a cheapened mate. And so it is exclusive to reflect God's love, which is committed to you, which is determined for your good, which lavishes you with love, which forsakes all others for you. And fourth, fourth we see biblical marriage is designed to reflect God's love in that it is joyous. It is joyous. Verse 25, giggly words for uh, young at heart or else. They were both naked and unashamed. Now we have talked about this as as describing uh, the, the sinlessness of Eden, the lack of guilt and shame in Eden. But its attachment right here to the marriage covenant means that it is also in respect of the marriage bed. This idea of they were both naked and unashamed is true of the marriage bed. The marriage bed. In God's graciousness and goodness has no shame in it. Has no reservations to it. It is a place created that is free to enjoy your spouse. 
free to enjoy one another. It is the epitome of what we mean by pure joy. The marriage bed is pure joy. There is no reason to ever feel guilty or ashamed about it. It has been given wide open for your enjoyment. And God blesses it. One of my favorite verses, I admit still, is Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. This is God's word on the marriage bed. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I try so hard to live up to that. Biblical obedience has never been a better challenge to take up. God made sex very good. I don't have to tell you that. Because, because joy is the fruit of covenantal love. I mean, why is sex so good? Because God wants you to know that in covenantal love is the maximum joy that, that you can ever experience. And so the gift of sex is given in the context of covenantal love. Now it might shock you to turn to the why question this time. Why? Why is marriage made to be joyous? Because marriage reflects the endless joy of God's covenant love for us. I'm about to read a verse to you that could make you blush. Isaiah 62.5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Blush. I mean, we all know what it means for the bridegroom to rejoice over his bride. That is the pinnacle of joy and excitement and desire. And we are told that God rejoices and desires and delights over you. Now, please don't make it sexual. It is, it is a lesser to the greater argument that as a husband rejoices to his apex in this environment, God, in a far greater way and greater dimension, rejoices and exalts over you, his bride. God rejoices over us. That's why he made marriage a place of extreme joy. We are his joy. As we sing out in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the joy that God's love has for us. And so he has blessed marriage with a, an unrivaled joy to reflect his unrivalable joy to us. So as we look at biblical marriage, we see it is designed to reflect God's love by being self-giving, by being permanent, by being exclusive and joyous. 
So for those who are married, how are our marriages at reflecting God's love? I suppose if you're like me, you recognize that we fall short. By this definition, everyone in this room has a a failed marriage in one way or another. And I don't want to glide past that. If you have experienced conviction about the way you love your spouse held up to the biblical standard, then take some time repenting. But that is not the real question that I want to leave us with in this sermon. The real question is not how is my marriage doing, but do I know the love of God? Do I know the love of God? We can't possibly reflect this love in our marriages until we have received this love from God. Whether we are married or unmarried, this is the question that God's gift of marriage calls us to. Do you know the love of God? Do you know the God who has given himself to you by dying on the cross for your sins? Do you know the God whose love is never ending, never fading, and always joyous for you? That love is proclaimed to you today. God is calling you to now to be part of that wedding of Christ. Listen to this final page from the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The offer of this amazing, joyous, never-ending, never-breaking, self-giving love is freely offered. It is given in the word, come. Have you come? If not, will you come? Will you respond to the gospel offer with your I do? The message of marriage is the proclamation that all of us are offered this love and joy. Be filled with this love and joy, and your life, whether single or married, will reflect it in innumerable and beautiful ways. Amen?